Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard from Sergeant First Class Alana Duffy, and today we're finishing that interview. Duffy conducted counterintelligence and interrogation operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's so crazy because uh, when I think back to whenever somebody asks, like, what's, you know, what's, is there a real difference between being a woman operating in that type of environment? The craziest thing is that I was like, yeah, but it's not necessarily the Iraqis who treated me differently, uh, a lot of times it was some of the more quote unquote high speed units from the U.S. that would look at me differently because I'm constantly having to prove myself over and over again that I'm not just some baby faced, what was I, 23, 23 uh, year old. Um, I wasn't even wearing rank, but uh, especially like if my hair's at all short, like I can look like I'm 12. So uh, I was constantly feeling like I had to prove myself and it was worst with some of the black ops types or Delta or some elements of special operations community because they had women in support roles, but I started calling it little ladying because they would basically be like, okay, little lady, aren't you cute? Like, quote, we, we don't think that's intelligence. We just think that you just want to be special. You know, sitting there in their short little black silky shorts. And I was like, you guys just don't want to put pants on and go do something today. Like, let's go. So I had been in Baghdad for about, three months. And then I ended up getting moved up to a, a town called Balad. And I was assigned out of the logistical support area Anaconda, which is a main supply hub and a large operating base. And one day we were on patrol. So I had done another mission about two weeks before and had been in a really bad car accident. It ended up not being enemy action, but multiple people were killed. Iraqis were killed in it. It was a, and destroyed our upper armored vehicle. And I had actually broken a piece, like chipped a piece of bone on my foot and torn some ligaments. 
but we didn't know because there was no x-ray or imaging. So I just wrapped it up and kept on going with my mission. Two weeks later, I'm on a, another patrol and um, we had not been outside the base for very long. We got a call over the radio that said, hey, there's going to be, uh, we have some weapons that were turned in. We're going to basically do a controlled detonation. It's explode them on base. Call came over the radio. So, you know, don't be alarmed if you hear something because you guys are still pretty close to the base. You might hear an explosion. It's okay. And roughly five minutes later, not only did they do the controlled detonation on base, but uh, an explosive that one of my sources had reported about a week before, maybe maybe two weeks before in terms of being there, uh, went off on our convoy about 25 meters from my vehicle. It was just timed wrong when whoever hit the trigger, there was too much of a delay. It missed directly hitting either the vehicle in front of us or my vehicle, but the shrapnel hit our vehicle and the way that I had to sit in these vehicles because the body armor was so big on me that I was always kind of pitched forward a little bit whenever I was sitting in the seats because the plate would always ride up on my back. And so I was always pitched forward a little bit and this bomb goes off and the blast wave made it through like a small gap in the armor because it was all add-on armor at the time. And I was blown backwards in my seat, pivoting on this plate. Even though I was wearing a helmet, I smashed my head on a metal plate that's behind the seat. And I actually really don't remember much from that day, from the days following, but I essentially had to fake it because if you are a woman, I mean, if you're a woman in the, in the military, especially doing tactical operations, you're already like, I've got to keep up. I've got to keep up with everybody or they're going to look at me like I'm a burden. And so I was just constantly fighting that fight. And I was like, they can't know anything is wrong. Um, I was uh, bleeding out of my ears, but I was like, oh, it's probably just a ruptured eardrum. But I didn't know anybody's name. I didn't know. Uh, I was trying to read names off of the soldiers' name tapes who I'd been working with for six months. I all of a sudden didn't know who they were. And, you know, try reading a Samoan name off a name tape and you're you're looking at like 15 letters and most of them are vowels and because my partner and my interpreter, who are both in the truck behind us, we didn't wear identifying information when we were outside of the gate. So I couldn't remember my partner's name. I couldn't remember my interpreter's name, but I was trying to fake it. And my balance was off. I was already starting to get like headaches immediately. And I never got headaches. And I was like, something is really wrong. But I just thought I was like, you know what, maybe it's just like stress and something else. So I just tried to play it off for 
for everyone who was around. The driver of our vehicle was like, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Like, acting kind of funny. Are you okay? I wasn't moving at first when the bomb went off. So he was pretty concerned because it's not like I didn't know what to do. Like, I have to get out and pull security unless something is wrong. But I just wasn't moving. Or at least that's what he told me later. Because I have no idea. I have no idea how long I was sitting there. And then I have little flashes of memory. But I faked it enough that we ended up continuing the mission. And that day, we pull up to my source's house because I had to see somebody that day. And I was somebody who never wrote anything down. I had a nearly a photographic memory. And we pull up to the house and... My partner walks up to the truck and I was like, hey, are we like setting up a checkpoint here? Like, this seems like a weird place. And he was like, uh, no, this is the guy that you've been talking to for three months. So you should probably talk to him. And I was like, oh, any idea what his name is or what I'm supposed to talk to him about? And again, like I, I had a photographic memory, like I never wrote a thing down. He was like, oh, OK, this is super weird. He reported it to my supervisors when we got back. It was that out of character. And they were like, okay, maybe it is stress. Like maybe, maybe it's something like that. And I thought for years that they had sent me to psych the very next day because they were like, you're acting super weird. But it turns out that they couldn't get me in there for like two, two or three days. And years later, I asked my supervisor, hey, what what happened in those two days? And she was she was like, "Uh, yeah, you still went out on missions like there was like, you know, gunfire next to you guys. Like you had to write another report. You had to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And I have no memory of any of it. And then we got home and I was so concerned about my leg and my ankle uh, that was never healing from what we thought was a sprain that I was just ignoring the fact that I was having migraines every day for hours. I was losing my vision. My speech was slurred or I couldn't find words. I had no balance and I had been a gymnast growing up and all of a sudden I couldn't walk in a straight line. It was a mess, but I was like, no, because they keep telling me that I'm going crazy and they'll take my clearance. So, you know, I'll get the physical stuff taken care of. I'll try to get my leg taken care of. And I tried to get myself around it for like two and a half years. And finally, a doctor, by that point, I'd moved to Germany and the doctor was like, hey, they're studying this thing now called blast wave traumatic brain injuries, and you have every single symptom. So you should probably talk to somebody who's in neurology. And they did an MRI and they figured out that I had actually that day in Iraq, two and a half years before, had a hemorrhage. And there was a large mass of coagulated blood and all kinds of fun spinal fluids and whatever else just chilling in the middle of my brain and wrapped around my carotid artery and affecting my vision and, and all of these things. And I was honestly so relieved that there was a reason for everything and that I wasn't going crazy, that I was like, oh, you guys want to do brain surgery now? 
cool. Let's friggin' do it. Spent about four months at Walter Reed, you know, went through all these other physical therapies and so forth. And I was the entire time, I was just so relieved and happy that they had finally figured out what was wrong and not just sent me to psych saying that I was just losing my mind. And that's why I was seeing shadows out of the corner of my eye. It was actually because there was so much pressure on my ocular nerve that it was blocking my peripheral vision on the right. And my left eye was starting to go lazy. And there was just all of these things. And I was like, finally, I have a reason. I I know what's going on. And so ultimately, however, I still stayed in for another four years after that because I loved what I did. I loved the the tangible nature of it, just the the ability to contribute. I went into a special mission type of unit for military intelligence. I was doing all sorts of cool guy stuff. I volunteered to deploy again. And the one of the doctors said, wait a minute, we were supposed to put you out of the military like 40 years ago after that whole brain surgery thing. What are you still doing here? And I was like, no, 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 I want a career. I'm just going to back on out of the room real slow and pretend like we didn't have this conversation. But apparently, you know, they don't work that way. And I ended up getting medically retired, I would say shortly, but, you know, it's the the medical evaluation board process. No, nothing happened shortly. So it took about another year and a half to two years for me to do that. But at least my unit let me keep doing certain operations during that time. And I was able to still contribute. But the problems that also because of that brain injury, I mean, I was, I still had no balance and I still had this leg injury that would never heal. And they, they didn't make the connection for a very long time, but essentially I had also had nerve damage. And so when I had torn ligaments and broken that piece of bone, it never healed properly. I was constantly getting problems with that leg. I was re-tearing stuff because I couldn't feel half my foot. And then the other half was searing pain when I would put my foot down. So I was always re-spraining or re-tearing or doing something to that leg. And so 14 years after the accident plus the bomb blast, I had finally had enough and ended up having that leg amputated because it was better than every year, sometimes twice a year, being put back in one of those boots and, you know, in in immobilizers because I had just completely torn another ligament in my right ankle. But I don't like to focus on that. I mean, I've I've started a company since then. I have uh, kind of gone back to my engineering roots, my entire mission now with Pathfinder Labs is to connect service members and veterans and families to local resources so they don't have to go through the same things that I did, that they can find the support that they need, that they can find 
medical advocates or or whatever else because there is absolutely no reason for someone to have to struggle to find that support when it's so readily out there and available and um because I still kind of need to make that tangible difference and I still want to make some change and be able to help other people and you know basically same thing that I was doing in the military. The more I can do to, the more I can do that makes somebody go home at the end of the day or go to sleep feeling like they've accomplished something, the better that I feel in that I've been able to tangibly, like tangibly contribute to someone's well-being. And that's even for perfect strangers, just a really good feeling to know that I'm making a difference somewhere to someone, no matter how many legs I've got, I don't really care. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. When the neurologist figured out that I had had this apoplexy, the uh, the brain hemorrhage, she was like, okay, based on onset of symptoms, yes, you sought medical care. Um, it was not the correct type of medical care, but nobody was looking at traumatic brain injuries at the time. So, okay, you knew something was wrong. It had resulted from this blast, got it, 
So from even before I had the surgery, she was like, this is directly tied to that explosion and you should be getting a purple heart from this. So that would have been in the spring of 2008 and two and a half years after the bomb had gone off in the fall of 2005. But the the way that a retroactive purple heart works is that it is supposed to go back up through your original chain of command who would have issued it in the first place. And I mean, it's a congressional medal, but it's pretty straightforward as to what the requirements are. And according to the doctors, they filed it initially through my commands. Uh, my current command supported it, the ones in Germany and but when they went back to my original command, my original command said, oh, no, no way. Uh, we left that deployment with no casualties. It's, you know, it's part of our it's part of our storyline for having gone out with an entire brigade and not having any reported casualties. And so that part looked bad to them, especially because it was a woman and there's not a whole lot of women who are injured in combat, especially in the days where women are not in technical combat roles, although combat support roles tend to have exposure like mine did. So it was a fight, but they and they they rejected it out of hand. I actually remember my, one of my supervisors at the time contacting me and to tell me that it had been rejected. And I think I was still at Walter Reed when this happened. I was recovering from brain surgery from this. And he was like, uh, so I don't know whose cereal you pissed in this morning, but they just rejected your Purple Heart. They said that this is not related. And they just tried to dismiss it out of hand. And my unit, that same unit, tried to resubmit it, uh, got rejected again. And when I had assessed into the, the special mission type of unit, they were finally able to get that old command. They were like, oh no, this will not stand. Interestingly enough, most of my command structure at that time was women all the way up through the colonel, uh, one of the colonels, and they were finally able to push the Purple Heart through for, and by the time they awarded it, it was almost exactly seven years after the incident. And I'm standing there at the Purple Heart ceremony, and uh, I forget if it was like one of the lieutenant colonels or one of the colonels, another woman. And she is reading the citation and and she's like, on 4 October, wait, 2005? It's 2012. This was seven years ago? Like, you know, Specialist Duffy at this point, I'm a Sergeant First Class. I was senior enlisted by now uh, standing next to her. And she was like, yeah. and I was just looking at her like, yeah, it's been a process. And she was like, oh, she was fairly new. She had not been there for the 
fight that had ensued prior. And so standing up there in front of like the entire unit, you could see the anger on her face. Um, so I did get a word of the purple heart and, uh, I have a tendency to refer to it as like, you know, the enemy marksmanship badge because they had better, better shooting that day than I did. But it's definitely something of note, especially because so few women have been awarded the Purple Heart for anything. And then for an injury like a severe traumatic brain injury, um, and what's also interesting is that now as an amputee, everybody automatically assumes like, oh, it's because, you know, you lost your leg in the war. And I was like, well, I mean, I lost my leg because of the war 14 years later. But uh, no, actually, it's because, you know, I still get migraines because there's still like nastiness wrapped around my carotid artery. And every time the pressure drops, there's nowhere for the air to expand in my cavernous sinus. So I get a migraine. So that's fun. And I still have no balance and still have partial vision. And, uh, you know, it's been great. It's been a real hoot. But uh, the difference of having a physical manifestation of an injury and an invisible injury, like a severe traumatic brain injury or something along those lines, it's like night and day. I mean, nobody ever asks anymore at the VA if I'm here for somebody else. Every time I set off the alarm, I'm like, uh, that's because the leg is, uh, you know, titanium and steel. But yeah, it was, so it was interesting. I ended up getting medically boarded for that brain injury. Um, I had been medically boarded a couple years prior for the leg. It wouldn't heal and it was kept getting worse and I kept you know, re-tearing it, but I had opted to stay in. And then when they caught up to me for the brain injury and they were telling me I would no longer be deployable, I could not go to either officer candidate school or warrant officer school. And I was already in E7 and I was no longer deployable. I probably wouldn't get promoted uh, because promotions on the enlisted side in the higher ranks were very, very competitive. And I was like, well, I've still got half my career left. I guess I'm just going to have to take the retirement because I can't, I'm not going to move up. I'm not going to do anything else. So I ended up getting medically retired and then moving back to the New York area and into New York and trying to find my way from there, getting involved with nonprofits and organizations and trying to find my place and trying to figure out how to contribute and trying to cross a street or step off of a curb without tearing another part of my ligament because it's a walk-in city, which is great for my physical therapy because, you know, if I want to go anywhere, I'm walking. So my physical therapist is thrilled when I'm like, oh, I walked up to Central Park. But yeah, it's... uh, I always say the army is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, even 14 years later, now I have, uh, you know, now I have five feet. Well, technically six, because I still have my real one. Um, but, uh, you know, now I've got six feet instead of two, just 
three are made of composite metals or no, the five are made of composite metals. Um, yeah. And still in various types of therapy, uh, still getting support through the VA, still very heavily connected to the veteran and service and military communities, both in New York and elsewhere. And, you know, it's funny that uh, now I have, I have more what I call lady vet friends than I ever had female friends in the military because you're always just trying to prove yourself and you, you don't, you don't want to lean on another woman when you've got, you know, the type of pressure that she's already under to exceed every standard. But, you know, I've, I've got friends, I've got support. It took a lot to find it and it was a hard struggle, but, but I've got it and I'm grateful for it. And I'm always happy to give that back to them when they need it too. That was Sergeant First Class Alana Duffy. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we have a very special episode just in time for Father's Day. I interviewed my dad, Colonel Kent Harbaugh, about his service as a phantom pilot in Vietnam and later as commander of a nuclear missile wing. Make sure you're following the podcast to see this interview in your feed as soon as it's out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Dave Douglas. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.